Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Sean Rosker. Today's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Grimm, here to discuss her latest book, Terror in Transition, Leadership and Succession in Terrorist Organizations. Dr. Grimm is an Associate Professor of Teaching in the Security Studies Program at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She is the author of How the Gloves Came Off, Lawyers, Policymakers, and Norms in the Debate on Torture, and the co-author of Terror in Transition, Leadership and Succession in Terrorist Organizations. Her work has been published in Survival, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, as well as Lawfare, The Washington Post, and Just Security. Prior to her employment at Georgetown University, she worked in the defense and security sectors of the U.S. government. Well, Dr. Grimm, no matter thank you both for being here today. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, so, Dr. Grimm, I know a bit about your book, a bit of what it's about, but why don't we just uh, kick things off with you telling us a little bit more about it uh, and what inspired you to uh, to write it? Thank you so much for the question, Sean, and thank you for this opportunity to talk about this book, this project that has subsumed so much of my life over the last several years with my co-author. So my co-author, Dr. Tricia Bacon, and I, we went to graduate school together, and we began this project, and it even pains me to say this date out loud, in the summer of 2018, right? It's almost tough to remember what the world was like then. And what our initial interest was, was to look at leadership in between sort of the two camps that we felt that leadership was often examined. So on one end, you have leadership examined between these large end studies of the effects of decapitation. And then on the other hand, we felt that there were a lot of books that had sort of singular profiles of individual leaders. So a book just about bin Laden, a big just a book just about Oshalon. And we felt that there was a real space, a really needed space for discussions about terrorist leadership in between those two poles. We also felt like Leadership is a topic about which both too many books and too few books have been written. And what we wanted to do with this project was really borrow extensively from the exceptional work on leadership done in disciplines other than terrorism studies. So to begin our thinking about this, we we delved into literature in theology. We delved into literature in organizational management and social movement. We even delved into literature, and we can talk about this later, in sports management. And so... We have before us in the summer of 2018, we're thinking about leadership in between these two aspects, in between the the large end studies of the effects of decapitation, the singular profiles of individual leaders. And our initial inquiry was an article that we wrote in Studies in Conflict and Terrorism. And the actual article was about the split, the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So I think our title was something about strategic strife or lackluster leadership. And we wrote this article in 2017 to ask the puzzle Would these two organizations have still had their very public rift, their very public divorce, if bin Laden was still alive? And so to help us investigate this question, we engaged in counterfactual theorizing about, you know, did these groups actually split because of, you know, forces outside of their control, strategic forces? Or really, was there something particular about the unifying leadership of bin Laden that kept these two disparate groups together? And our answer was... Yes, right. That the the leadership, the leadership of bin Laden was really elemental in in unifying and overcoming divisions, unlike the leadership, as we noted, of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is a more divisive, less unifying figure than bin Laden. And so I would say right from 2017, 
this piece really kicked off our interest in the study of leadership. And we felt that more needed to be said. In particular, we felt that more needed to be said about leadership of religious terror organizations who play such a critical role in their groups, right? And so for religious terror organizations, they play they play a double role of both preacher and prophet. They are often interpreting the religious text for their followers. And so in contrast to a wide variety of other terror groups that are active, leaders really do play a central role in religious organizations. And so this, this work on this article begins in 2017, and we received such positive feedback from the article that we felt like there was more to say. And so our book tackles three big questions. What is the role of a founding leader of a religious terror organization? What are the factors that are shaping their successor? And what are the types of successors? And the reality is that successions are key moments for any organization. They're key moments for terror organizations. They're key movements for business organizations. And no matter what type of organization we're talking about, these successions are a time of confusion. They're a time of internal competition. And they're a time for disruption. And from any organization that we think about, transitioning to a new leader can prove very, very difficult. And so we really sought to focus on those three main areas, to look at what a founder does, to look at what factors shape their succession, and then the types of successors that come after them. Terrific. Uh, you alluded to the three different stages there, and I'd like to kind of pick those apart. So starting with the first one, the founding leader uh, and the role in shaping the organization. Uh, can we start picking that apart? Uh, and then perhaps you can explain for us what exactly uh, follows the, within the organization once that leader uh, is removed uh, in whatever capacity that takes form. Right. Sean, it is difficult to put into words just how important a founding leader is. And the reason for that is that the founder sets what we call the how and the why for the organization. And so what we mean by this, and in this we drew pretty heavily from social movement literature, the founder sets the why. And what the why is, is why fight? Why choose violence? Why choose terrorism? This is this is the framing. This is the reason for being of the organization. In addition to that, the founding leader sets the how. And for us, the how for a terrorist organization is the tactics, so the the choice of violence, the means of violence, but also resource mobilization. How do they raise funds? How do they recruit? And our primary argument is that every founding leader sets the how and the why. And every successor who comes after them either chooses to keep the how and the why consistent or change. And what we mean by that is that there, there are certain successors who simply choose to essentially keep with incremental changes, meaning they do not change dramatically the how and the why that the founder set out. And for us, these were leaders that we called caretakers. Caretakers are basically, they are keeping the train running. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are proceeding in the way that the leader would have wanted, would have chosen. The second group of successors that we found are called fixers. And what fixers do is that they keep the why very stable, very consistent with what the founder wanted, but they make dramatic changes to the how. So this could mean moving into a totally different area for resource exploitation that they hadn't before. It could mean introducing a brand new tactic that had never been done before, such as introducing women as suicide bombers, if that wasn't particularly part of the repertoire of action that the founder had laid out. 
So you have caretakers who make only small changes to the how and the why. You have fixers who are making dramatic changes to the how, but very minimal sort of incremental changes to the why. Then we have signalers. And signalers make only minimal changes to the how, but they make dramatic changes to the why. This is the framing, right? The, the reason for violence. One of the major major things done under this auspices was changing the definition of who is the enemy. So this could move from, in the cases that we studied, just having particularly an Algerian constituency to, to aligning with Al-Qaeda, to having a much broader base of what the, the object of violence was. So caretakers keep everything moving, right? The, the how and the why stay stable. Fixers change the how dramatically, but keep the why stable. Signalers dramatically change the why, but keep the how stable. And the fourth leader group that we found of successors are visionaries. And visionaries are dramatically, discontinuously changing both. They're dramatically changing the how and the why from that baseline, from that founding frame that the founder originally set out. And then the last group just to point to these are figureheads. These are individuals. This is our fifth group. And Sean, quite frankly, we found that sometimes leaders are not actively choosing change or continuity. And they might choose this for a variety of reasons. They might choose this because they're in poor health. They might choose this because they are in prison and they are unable to dramatically or even incrementally change the how or the why. But what we did then was to say, all right, you the founder sets the baseline of the how and the why. Every successor positions themselves relative to that how and the why. And then the sort of overarching layer of all of it is counterterrorism pressure. Because the reality being that terror groups make very different decisions in a low counterterror environment than they would make in a high counterterror environment. So what we mean by a low counterterror environment is that they have the freedom and flexibility to undertake core activities. So operational planning, fundraising, recruitment without the fear that they will be arrested, without the fear that they will be killed. In contrast, in a high counter-terror environment, there's not that same freedom of movement, freedom of action, freedom of decision. And so we deliberately chose cases around this range of low versus high counter-terrorism pressure in order to evoke how groups make different decisions. And so, again, our scoping for this were religious terror organizations. And we set out to tell this story by looking at a wide sample of religious terror organizations. And so by that, I mean, we wanted temporal diversity, we wanted geographic diversity, and we wanted type of religion diversity. And so we chose for our major case studies, cases that spanned over 100 years ago. So we chose the case of the second clan, for example, which operated in the United States starting 1915 and lasting until 1927. This was a sort of classic case of no counterterrorism pressure, right? This was a group that was fully integrated into the halls of power. We also looked at the case of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which experienced low counterterrorism pressure outside of Egypt, but very high counterterrorism pressure inside of Egypt. We look at the case of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and quite frankly, through the duration of its um, existence that we studied, it experienced very high counterterrorism pressure. And then we looked at the case of al-Shabaab, which experienced sort of variations in the range of its counterterrorism pressure. In addition to those four groups, we wanted to test our conclusions on a wider sample. And so we created a data set with 29 additional other terror groups in order, again, to, to test the validity of our findings, to see if it held across a range of groups. And in this, 
And our 33 groups total, we wanted to see essentially what were the pathways? How often did we see founders go to caretakers or founders to fixers or founders to signalers? What was the impact of a founder being killed or a founder stepping down? What, what types of leaders did we see emerge? And among all of this, the question for us is, how does this relate to counterterrorism? What are the implications of all of this for policymaking? And that's perfect. Um, before we dive into the policymaking, uh, this this idea of the, uh, the four types of successors uh, is, is extremely interesting. I'd like to know, uh, does each organization kind of inherently contain a mixture of these four different types of successors? Um, is there an imbalance among them or is it or is it too, too hard to tell without diving into the uh, internal makeup of each? Sure, sure, sure. So there's nothing I would say either predictive or prescriptive. Sean, in our research, we found that there were certain times that groups should have chosen a certain type of successor and yet didn't, right? So they should have chosen a successor that might have revitalized the organization like a visionary, and yet they failed to do so. So I would not say necessarily that there was anything predictive that had conducted a certain number of attacks over a certain amount of time and had existed for at least two years. So there's effectively a bias here for, uh, for lack of a better term, I would say successful organizations. But when you look at the case of Al-Qaeda, I mean, quite frankly, this is a group that has had one leadership transition and it went from founder to caretaker. There are other organizations that you see the same successor operate in different roles over the course of their tenure. So a good example for this, and again, to sort of pick on him twice, is, is Ayman al-Zawahiri. So Al-Qaeda is not the first group that he led. He was previously the leader of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Now, he was a very different type of leader when he was the leader of EIJ than he was for Al-Qaeda. So he was actually the leader twice, effectively, for EIJ, first from 1993 to 1995, and then again from 1996 to 2000 before they merge with Al-Qaeda. In his first tenure, the sort of delineation that we note, he really operates as a fixer. But then what we see during the last five years before they firmly merge with Al-Qaeda is that he becomes a visionary. He pulls the Egyptian Islamic Jihad away from the founding frame that had been set by its founder, Mohammed Faraj, which was to organize a coup, a sort of popular revolt within Egypt that would topple that government and make the room, make the space for an Islamic leader. By, 19, by 2001, Ahmed al had fully aligned his vision for EIJ to be consistent with bin Laden's vision, right? The vision of toppling the far enemy before targeting a near enemy. And so all, all of that is to say, Sean, not only is there nothing predictive about the roles, but there's also nothing predictive, interestingly enough, about the leaders. And why I think that's so important, again, when we think about our work as sort of the in-between, situated in the mid-range between these large N data sets of decapitation and these sort of smaller, more singular focused profiles, is that a lot of the profiles tend to focus on personality, Right? They tend to focus on traits like charisma. And the reality is that Ayman al-Zawahiri did not change. This man has always been the man that is described as what? Disputatious, lacking in grace, argumentative. I mean, journalist Peter Bergen described him as the individual you would never want to sit next to at a Thanksgiving dinner. Right, His, his personality didn't change from the time that he was a teenager in Egypt trying to set up a cell that would become part of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad till his death. What did change was the way that he led. 
And that is really a point that I want to hammer home. And I think it's really important to mention on the podcast is that the same individual can be a very different type of leader within the same organization in a different time period. And the question for us is less who the individual is and more the question of how are they leading? I see. I see. And so, yeah, that brings us to a good point here. Uh, We could circle back to the policy discussion. So why does this matter to security professionals? Um, Why does this matter to the larger policy debate? Yeah, for sure. I think I would say, firstly, that it is impossible, impossible to put into words just how important the founder is in establishing that base of the organization, because that is the baseline from which all successors will position themselves, right? So the founder's background, their training, their their ties with their religious community, their ties with their social community, their organizing ability, those are all factors that will eventually help them mobilize the resources that are necessary to engage in violence and also the ideational pool that's necessary to attract followers. So I would say, Sean, that the overarching point is to say, Founders need to be studied. For all of you who are interested in research papers, longer term assignments, delving deeply into independent social science research, looking very carefully at the role of founders in terrorist organizations, I think is an aspect that very much needs to be studied. And as I talked about, we actually didn't create typologies of founders. We created typologies of successors. So for individuals who are thinking about papers to write for future avenues of research, I think there's a very rich avenue to go down is to say, can we create typologies of leaders? Is there, of founders rather, is there there additional granularity that we need to have on the role of the founder themselves? And I would say yes. So I then think the bigger question is the implication for targeting. And just to be very clear, even though this is a story, truly a story about founders and successors, we, Dr. Bacon and I, we are not arguing that CTFers should only focus on leaders. In fact, we think that this, the targeting of leaders, it is one element in an overarching counterterrorism approach. Because quite frankly, a number of the cases that we looked at are terror groups that are, for lack of a better word, sort of deeply embedded in the mainstream of society. So we examined quite richly the case of the Second Clan, in which the more impactful factor that impacted the downfall of that organization was the destigmatization, you know, the the stigmatization rather of extremism, the the societal turnaway from the violence, from from the hatred that they were spewing. That that had a much more influential role in the rise and fall of that terrorist violence than any of the leaders that we set in the second clan. But I would say the second point. So if the overarching point is first, the founder, the founder cannot be cannot be overestimated. I would say, secondly, is that each of these successor types, caretaker, fixer, signaler, visionary, and even figurehead, each of the five types has weaknesses that can be exploited through counterterrorism efforts. And so what do I mean by that? I think when we think first about caretakers, and remember, these are the folks who are keeping the how and the why stable, consistent with what the founder would have wanted. I would argue that that conservative style of leadership, that could expose an organization to be poorly positioned to adapt, poorly positioned to change, poorly positioned to react to shifting geopolitical sands. There were some who were quite critical, for example, of the leadership of Ayman al-Zawahiri insofar as he operated as a caretaker, right? We open our book with a quote from Dr. Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware that said, if bin Laden had been alive, if bin Laden had been alive two years ago, he would have been a very happy man with where al-Qaeda was as an organization. 
But the flip side of that conservative style of leadership is that there wasn't the same level of adaptation to what the what the reality of the world was like in 2022. So on one hand, the caretaker, this, this conservative style of leadership, it can be less adaptive than the group needs. I would say for fixers, signalers, and visionaries, there are opportunities in all of those groups to discredit those leaders. And discredit how? By highlighting their hypocrisy, by highlighting the betrayal of the organization's founding frames, the founders' methods. We found that signalers, even more so visionaries, they can be very, very divisive. They can drive wedges within an organization. They can drive wedges with the group's constituency, even its allies. Visionaries in our sample, they reflected divisions and they often created divisions. And last, I would say, with regards to the figureheads, I mean, this is sort of like a ship without a captain, right? So without any direction from the leader, the group could become adrift. The group could become riven with divisions. In other words, there might be a utility. There might even be a benefit for leaving figureheads in place, despite the clear policy preference for for a decapitation approach. And do you think that a counterterrorism strategy can effectively and holistically or should focus on each of these leadership typologies collectively? Or does one need to be singled out within a particular group before an effective strategy can really be formulated? Like, what does that require? I think that is a great question. I think the first step would be to know from a counterterrorism perspective, what is the leadership type that you are facing? Because it matters then and then conditions what you would do to respond. And so by that, I mean, for example, it matters a great deal if you are facing a caretaker with whom there is a great deal of sympathy and allegiance and alliance with the founding, the founding leaders, organizational frames, their tactics. In contrast, I would say, it is important to know first and foremost, are you facing, in contrast, a visionary with whom there is a great counterterrorism opportunity to further increase divisions, further increase cleavages within the organization by highlighting the difference between that leader's plans and mission and frames from what the founder had adopted. And so I think, to your exact question, the very first counterterrorism point overarchingly should be, what type of leader archetype are we facing? What are we looking at? What is this a case of? And then having that condition some of the responses. And what would you say could be some of the consequences, some of the costs of pursuing the wrong archetype, of attributing the wrong archetype to a particular group, uh, perhaps working under faulty assumptions, uh, and devoting resources to that? Exactly. So, for example, if the group has a figurehead, if there is not targeting of that figurehead, what might happen is that the group might break up on its own, right? The group might collapse. The group might not have the direction to be able to keep going. And so it would be conservation of resources and also recognition of simply what is the best approach? What is the right approach to take with regards to the organization? And I think having that level of knowledge is essential. I would also say it is very, very important to pay attention from a counterterrorism perspective to these moments of succession. Because no matter what, as I said at the very beginning of our chat, successions are moments of disruption. Successions are moments of disruption in any organization. And so 
for example, we are we are living through questions of succession. So Ayman Azhari was was recently killed in July of this year. And so I think there is a profound counterterrorism opportunity to understand very deeply what the nature of his leadership of Al-Qaeda was, but then also to use that to understand what might come next. And you mentioned, uh, alluded to earlier, uh, what future practitioners uh, in the counterterrorism field can do. So looking forward, you know, for students, for us students, what specifically uh, can we do to contribute uh, to this kind of like emerging discussion? Oh my gosh, there is so much to do. So at the end of every international relations book or article or podcast, there's there's often this sort of advice for future travelers, right? So knowing this, if you're interested in this, what are some other avenues for research? So one future avenue for research, I would say, is to problematize the role of the founder themselves. So do these same typologies, do these same archetypes hold for founders? That I think is an issue that is ripe for discussion. I think a second avenue to look at would be the question of, we solely looked at religious terror organizations, again, because religious leaders play such a central role in their organization. But I think a really fruitful avenue for research would be to take these archetypes and ask the question, do they apply to other groups? Do they apply to right-wing groups? Do they apply to left-wing groups? Or is this a characteristic that we simply see as pertinent to, to religious terror organizations? I think this leadership model could be used looking at differences in time. So do we see leadership transitions differently now in which we have an era of widespread communications technology, you know, widespread ability to communicate with followers around the world versus do we, do we experience leadership transitions differently before that? I also think, I mean, the vast majority of the leaders that we looked at in our sample were men, right? There are a disproportionate number of men who are religious terrorist leaders, do these same trends hold? Do these same models hold for female leaders? Or is there something, Is there are there sort of cross-cutting truisms or is there something quite different? Sean, I think for anyone who is interested even a little bit in the question of leadership, I to me, leadership is something that we just sort of take for granted. Like I said, I think some of the oldest books ever written are actually stories about leadership. I mean, one could even read the Bible as a story about leadership, right? The foibles and the problems of succession. For a student that is interested in leadership, there is no shortage of of fruitful avenues for research. And it's simply just taking one piece of this, even taking one aspect of this model and applying it to a group that they are interested in, right? So looking at, for example, we examined a wide number of groups. We examined Hezbollah, the IMU, JDL. We examined the Moral Islamic Liberation Front. but one could imagine a really excellent 710 paper or a, a research paper for a terrorism class that looks simply at the leadership transitions in one specific group that that student is is interested in. And were there any other lessons uh, to tease out from your research uh, from this book and specifically uh, that you'd like to hit on today? Oh, my goodness, Sean. Can, can we say as an overarching lesson, do not write a book in Corona um, when you have no childcare, to me, that was a big lesson learned. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, my third child was born 10 days after this manuscript was delivered to the publisher. And so truly, and I can't say this enough, writing a 
book. I mean, Orwell said it best in which he said, writing isn't always like a bout with a long, painful illness. And I, I cannot stress enough just how true that was in the course of writing a book with no childcare in a time of Corona. But I think one piece of advice that I would give, and I mean this quite sincerely, is that we didn't really know what the argument of the book was going to be until the book was about 70% written. And I don't think that that's unusual. I think the way that people often think about writing is that you're hit by the muse, right? Like you, you open up the windows and like birds fly in and they peck at the typewriter and suddenly comes out. I can't stress enough how false that is, right? Writing is hard. Writing is arduous. And for us, Trish and I probably wrote, I would say roughly 250,000 words that we never used. We talked to a ton of people. We did a lot of experimenting. We presented this um, at a lot of academic conferences before we really felt like we hit on something that was real and was important and that we really wanted to say. But truly, we so we had a we had a conversation over the summer, so in June or July of the summer, in which the model that we had been using for the book, Professor Shapiro Princeton basically said to us, oh, you know, I, I tried what you are presenting. I tried it for about nine months and it didn't work, so I abandoned it. And we went, oh my gosh. So we, we sort of fully went back to the drawing board. So I think a lesson is that you have to be open for experimentation. You have to embrace the mantra of a shitty first draft. You have to just get words on paper and then realize that those words will need time to sort of simmer and reflect. I also think nothing is ever achieved in a vacuum, and I'm indebted forever for all of my life to my co-author, Trisha Bacon, but also to the unbelievable team. And I do use the word team very intentionally of research assistants from SSP, without whom this project would not have come to fruition. So we had our eyes at every step along the way who were developing these mini case studies, who were doing the deep dives into Amshin Rikyo, who were doing the deep dives into the Iron Guard and Grey Wolves. And we have one of the excellent RAs on this podcast right now. So Mel Matarang, who can speak to, in a very real sense, what it is like to get the book across the finish line. I feel like this is me asking Mel a question. <laughs> it, it essentially is. It handed me the layup. So I'll take it from here. Uh, Mel, the RA's perspective. Uh, talk to us about that. I feel like, should I hang up? I feel like that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, please stay with us. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Grimm, for that question. And thank you, Sean, for inviting me to this wonderful discussion. Um, it's really great to see um, this engagement regarding the book. Um, so I joined uh, Dr. Grimm on her RA team earlier this summer, and the book was already wrapping up, but I wanted an experience that allowed me to take what I learned in the classroom and see it in practice. And so I saw exactly that the summer Dr. Grimm had already mentioned um, when I'm in all Zola theory was killed um, this summer. We mobilized as a group. We said, hey, what's, you know, what's being talked about? What can we push in an article? and relate it back to this book. And that was such an amazing experience. So we had an article in Lawfare and um, other academic journals and being a part of that and researching various articles, finding sources, that was definitely the, the experience that I was looking for in a research assistantship that I truly recommend to students at SSP if they have the opportunity, the bandwidth to seek out these opportunities because it's, it's one thing like learning in the classroom, but seeing it in practice and engaging with scholarship and working with wonderful professors is really an invaluable experience. And, and fully, fully 
a team endeavor. I mean, I I cannot say enough good things. I I don't even know that there is enough time. I one of my favorite parts about writing is the preparation of the acknowledgement sections because it really sort of forces you to reflect on all of the individuals that got you to that place. But just as a rough rule of thumb, I mean, Matt Buckwald, you know, Kat Chang, Sophia Gomez, Tina Huang, Kat Kelly, Shrishti Kemka, Freddie Ludke, I mean, Helen Lundsman, Tara Maloney, Emma McCaleb, Sarah Moore, Joey Stabile, Yevon Watt. I mean, I feel like I can't even, I've, I apologize because I hope I have not missed anyone, but I think as an overarching caveat to the point that I said about how all writing is like about with a powerful illness and you don't really know what it's about till 70% of the way that you're done. I would say to the extent that people listening have the opportunity to become an RA, to join a research team, it's really something quite extraordinary. And the creation of social science knowledge and all of the challenges and obstacles that come with it, I really strongly recommend as an opportunity that people avail themselves during the time that they're in SSP. And I feel so privileged to have worked. I can safely say that all of my thoughts, all of our thinking on this evolved because of the RA work. I mean, we fully included one aspect of our caretaker model because one of the RAs on the team, Joyce Stabile, had been watching the NFC Championship game and looked at the coaching tree, ways in which authority and prestige were passed down from Bill Walsh as a coach and the ways in which we saw that replicated in the terrorism space. I mean, in my experience, the students at SSP have come up with innovations that if I had the rest of my life to think of, I would have never come up with. And so it was a tremendous, tremendous growth opportunity for me to bounce ideas off to, to benefit from the wisdom of all the SSP RAs that we worked with. Yeah, you really speak to the true uh, value can be found in the uh, cross-disciplinary uh, approach to things, meshing the sports world, <laughs> the international relations world, security and like. Uh, Mel, before we wrap up, I just wanted to toss this last one at you. All the lessons that Dr. Grimm spoke to about RA-ship, uh, would you be able to kind of like, uh, as an RA, as someone with that experience, can you do you track with those lessons? Would you say that you experienced those or... Can you perhaps identify something uh, that you learned along the way that hasn't been touched on yet? Definitely. So echoing everything that Dr. Broom said, I, I completely agree with that. And one thing, and this might be um, you know relevant for me, but it might be relevant for anyone who is interested in academia or wants to try that out. I did this research assistantship to also get more experience in research writing analysis. And I had this very daunting idea of what it's like to come up with my own research. I thought I'd had to have something groundbreaking or I had to have the answer to a problem that um, everybody has been trying to solve. But honestly, it's really seeing what the conversation is out there surrounding an interest that deeply interests you and seeing the gaps and um, being able to learn the process of identifying those gaps, researching the literature, and then by digging and digging, coming up with possible solutions and continuing the academic conversation out there, I think was one of the things that was clearly spelled out for me during this entire experience and just the valuable experience of working with amazing people. So Dr. Grimm has stressed the research team that she has. I, I, I love each and every one of them. I love Dr. Grimm and it has really uh, allowed me to work with such wonderful people. And I, I would totally recommend anyone at SSP to have that experience. And Dr. Grimm, any final thoughts to add to today's episode? 
No, I would love any student that has the opportunity to to pick up the book. I would love to continue the conversation. And I, I, I just want to say we owe this theory building endeavor. We owe a tremendous intellectual debt to all the work that has preceded us. So, you know, decades of research across disciplines, social movement, literature, business management, organizational theories. And this is what students can also do. They can continue this work of theory building, of testing theories out, of taking theories to play. And I think it's one of the profound benefits that we have of being here at Georgetown. So I'm really grateful to you all for this time. It has been so much fun to chat with you. And I'm grateful to all the listeners. And if you have the opportunity to pick up the book, come by and chat. We are, there's literally nothing, as Mel knows, that I like to talk about more. We can we can talk much more about it. But I'm really grateful to your time, both Sean and Mel. And thank you, Dr. Krim, for your time today and for the wonderful discussion on incredibly interesting and such an analytically important topic uh, and for highlighting its uh, ongoing relevance to the security debate. Uh, and thank you, Mel, for giving us the uh, RA perspective here and, and uh, running us through that. Thank you. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. I'd like to thank Mel Mattering for researching and editing the episode and Chris Bull for providing additional research support. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of Georgetown Security Studies Review.